This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. Today's case takes us to Kingston-upon-Hull, England. On the 31st of December, for many it's a chance to close out the year with a bang, have loads of fun with family and friends, and think about the dreams and goals they have for the upcoming year. And, 21 years ago, that was no different. Tuesday, the 31st of December, 2002. People across the UK were getting ready for a night of celebrating, ready to ring in the new year. -year 21-year-old Rachel Moran was no exception. She set off to enjoy the evening in the pub with some friends and her brother John. Rachel was very close to her family and was going to spend that night at her parents' house on Hall Road. After an evening of fun and drinking, Rachel and John headed back to their parents' house. At around 1.15am, Rachel's mother Wanda was yet to turn in for the night and was still awake reading when John and Rachel returned. John headed straight to bed and Rachel stayed up with her mum. Wanda asked Rachel if she wanted to give her boyfriend Mark a call to wish him a happy new year, and Rachel decided she would. Mark was due to be at the home he shared with Rachel, looking after the kittens the couple had. Rachel dialed the number, but the call rang out. She then called his mobile, and the person who picked up was not Mark, but a mutual friend. Rachel could hear a party going on in the background, and it turned out he had been invited to a house party and agreed to go. Rachel wasn't happy and was frustrated because it meant that the kittens had been left alone. Then Mark's phone ran out of credit and she could no longer get through. As Rachel disappeared off, Wanda assumed she was going to bed, but Rachel soon reappeared, changed her shoes and headed for the front door, telling her mom goodbye. Wanda went after her and as she went outside, she asked her where she was going. Rachel replied that she was going home to be with the kittens and make sure they were okay. The weather was horrible and cold, and Wanda was concerned for her daughter. There were very few taxis due to it being New Year's Eve, and Wanda didn't really want her daughter walking home in the dark by herself. As they stood outside talking, a man walked past them, and Wanda was so concerned she nearly called out to him and asked him to walk with Rachel and make sure she was safe, but she chose not to. Despite her mother's protests, Rachel set off and began the walk back to her flat. Wanda called out to her and told her to ring as soon as she got home. Rachel replied that she would. Thirty minutes had soon passed. There had been no call from Rachel. Wanda continued to call Rachel's mobile repeatedly, but she wasn't answering. Her home phone also went unanswered. Wanda tried to think about where she could be. Maybe she had gone out looking for Mark, but the time continued to tick by, and it had now been two hours since Rachel had left and there was still no word from or sign of her. Wanda was exhausted and decided to go to bed, 
hoping that in the morning she would hear from Rachel and that everything was okay. As daylight broke, Wanda's phone rang. She got out of bed and ran downstairs as relief washed over her, hoping it was her daughter. But it wasn't. It was Vanda, her other daughter and Rachel's sister, calling her mom to wish her a happy new year. Wanda spoke to her son John and her husband Ray and told them that Rachel had gone home in the early hours of the morning and failed to get in touch. John tried ringing Rachel's mobile phone, but he too was met with silence, and the calls wouldn't connect. As he tried calling her house phone, there was a glimmer of hope. The phone was engaged, meaning there was someone there using the phone. Wanda called back five minutes later, and the call connected and was answered. It was Mark. Wanda asked him if Rachel was there. No, she's not here. She was staying with you last night, wasn't she? Mark told Wanda he had been out all night and got back to the flat at around seven that morning and gone straight to bed. The flat was as he had left it. The kittens hadn't been fed and there was nothing to suggest that Rachel had been back at all. Wanda and John immediately went over to the flat and Mark was right. She definitely had not made it back. This was so out of character for Rachel and Wanda knew that something was very wrong with the whole situation. Mark tried to calm her fears and said that Rachel knew many people and could have gone to someone's house. It hadn't even been 12 hours yet. But Wanda was not convinced. She knew that Rachel would have called her as soon as she got home. And, if she wasn't at home, where was she? Rachel Moran was the youngest of four, born in Ireland to parents Wanda and Ray. She had three siblings, her brother John, and two sisters, Vanda and Kerry. Her father called her the baby of the family. As a child, she had wanted to become a vet, but when she got older, she changed her mind and became a worker in a creche, looking after babies. It was a job she adored. Rachel was a very striking woman and stood at six feet tall. She was someone who enjoyed life and saw the good in everyone she met. She had been an entertainment and cabaret student at Hull College, and although she was well-known and sociable, she was more shy with those she didn't know. It was also at Hull College that she met Mark Shepard in 2001, and a romance soon blossomed. They lived in a one-bedroom, first-floor flat on the Orchard Park estate. Orchard Park is a quiet suburb of Kingston-upon-Hull, and as Rachel was incredibly close to her family and a real homebird, she wanted to be as close to them as possible. When she moved in with Mark, she ended up living less than a mile away from them. She wanted new challenges, and as she thought more about what she wanted to do, she decided that in the new year, she was going to go back to college and study catering, with the hopes of becoming a chef. As the holiday season approached, Rachel and Mark got two kittens, named Speedy Tomato and Batman. Rachel doted on them. Knowing that the festive period was going to be a busy one, Rachel and Mark made a plan to ensure that the kittens were regularly checked on. They decided that while Mark went to see his mother for Christmas, she would stay in the flat with the kittens. Then when he came back, Rachel would go out on New Year's Eve and Mark would stay with them. But after she had walked home to feed them after learning Mark was at a party, Rachel was now missing. For her to fail to contact her family after promising she would was very unusual and with there being no evidence that she had even made it home, 
her brother and mother went straight to the police station on Priory Road and reported Rachel as missing. Detective Superintendent Paul Davison was leading the investigation and he later explained that the first thing that is looked at are the circumstances. Was this something people would expect Rachel to do? Was this something she had done before? No, it wasn't. Trevor Watts, who also worked for Humberside Police, said it was clear that there was something seriously wrong. The police acted quickly and began their search for her. More than 40 officers were part of the initial investigation into what had happened to Rachel. Her family came in and gave witness statements. And I said, just, your father will kill me if he knows I've let you walk home on your own. And I said, I can't even put you in the car because I've had a couple of drinks. She said, it doesn't matter because I'm all right. Wanda mentioned to the police someone who could be a witness, the man who had walked past them on the street. And he was wearing a shirt in a similar colour to the blue one you're wearing mm-hmm. today. Detectives began trying to find this person, and as they did, they also spoke to Mark. They knew that there had been an argument between him and Rachel, and it was vital to ascertain whether or not Mark could possibly be involved. So I don't remember her talking to her either. You don't remember talking to her at all? She won't have none of it, so I ended up going to my friend's house somewhere. Because she didn't want to come. I got a bit upset with her. Paul Davison said that Mark did not appear to be that worried or upset, which did strike them as strange. Mark was then put under surveillance and his alibi was looked at too. But the surveillance turned up nothing, as Mark did nothing out of the ordinary, and nothing to arouse suspicion either. His alibi also checked out. He had nothing to do with Rachel's disappearance. This meant they were not only back at square one, but also that the worst fears of everyone were now seeming more likely. She had potentially come to harm at the hands of a stranger. Stranger abductions are, thankfully, very rare, but this was something they had to consider. Her bank account had not had any money withdrawn, her mobile phone hadn't made any calls or sent any texts, none of her clothes were missing from her flat. The police began looking at the network of CCTV cameras in the area to see if they could find Rachel on the night of her disappearance, and they did. CCTV cameras picked her up, passing a place called Jackson's on Hall Road. This gave police not only a timestamp of her movements that night, but also showed the direction she was walking in, meaning they had a much more specific place to focus their search efforts and investigation. All available resources were now being used in the search for Rachel. Police helicopters were deployed. The dogs were also out with their handlers and police on horseback were used too. The Humberside police diving team were drafted in to join the search, and all of this was deeply painful for Rachel's family, seeing how serious this now was. The media coverage was intense, and many appeals were put out for any information. Rachel was described in these appeals as being more like a teenager than a young woman in her 20s, as her family begged for any news of her whereabouts. Saturday, the 11th of January, 2003. The divers were searching the Barnston drain. This was a canal that was often used by people to dump rubbish in, and it was here that they found their first clue. A Nike trainer, very similar to the one that Rachel had changed into at her mother's house. The divers continued to search, 
carefully removing rubbish layer by layer and going through everything thoroughly. And the next day, the Barmston drain would reveal more. A handbag was found in a bin bag. It was carefully removed and examined, and inside the handbag they found a mobile phone and makeup. One item revealed who the owner of the bag was, an Irish passport, belonging to Rachel Moran. The handbag and the items within it had clearly been discarded in such a way as to ensure that it wasn't found. It hadn't been accidentally dropped in there. It was now looking more and more likely that this was a case of foul play. To try and generate new leads, the police conducted a reconstruction of Rachel's last known movements. A police officer who looked like Rachel wore the same outfit she had been in and walked the route she had taken. They hoped that this would jog someone's memory who had possibly seen her or something of note that night. This did cause several people to come forward, but because of it being New Year's Eve, alcohol had caused their recollections to be a bit blurred or hazy. The appeal did give police access to new CCTV footage taken from a local school. The footage was very poor quality, but a figure could be made out in the top left corner of the screen, and it was the officer's belief that this was Rachel. If this was indeed her, this meant she would have been less than 200 metres from the safety of her flat. This also meant that if it was her, she had taken a route that was slightly different to the one they had first believed she had walked. They initially thought she had taken a route that was well lit, but if this was her on the footage, she had actually taken a route that was a lot darker. As the footage continued to play, they noticed something else. There was a figure running up behind Rachel. If she had vanished from around this point, maybe this person was responsible. This footage now meant that the police had an area to focus on. And as Officer Trevor Watts explained, 99% of bodies are found within one mile of the last sighting of the person. It was decided that every single home within a mile and a half of Rachel's was to be searched. More than 100 officers were drafted in, and it became the biggest search ever undertaken by Humberside Police. It was an enormous risk for the force. The sheer amount of time and manpower needed to thoroughly search every property was enormous, but if there was a chance, no matter how small, that they were going to find Rachel, it was a risk they needed to take. Tuesday, the 28th of January, 2003. The search of the houses began. Each search team was made up of three people, a search specialist and two police officers, and as more and more houses were searched, Paul Davison received a call in the incident room. The caller was a police officer. He was deeply upset and distressed. The news that came through was shocking. PC Steve Dennison and his team had conducted a search of 19 Nash Court. The owner was a young man, and he had a friend, another male, who was visiting. The flat was dirty and unclean, with rubbish strewn about the place. The search of the property was quick, and the owner assisted the officers by showing them each room. There was no sign of Rachel. There was one last thing for them to look at. The bin cupboard that was part of the apartment block and belonged to number 19. They asked the owner for the key. He said he didn't have one. Then he said he didn't know where it was. 
and then changed his story again and said that the key was maybe at his mom's. The officers found it odd. Why would he not have a key to a cupboard that was regularly used and a cupboard that was part of his property? The officers weren't budging. They needed to search it. They told him to find the key and find it quickly. He soon did. He handed it to the officer and went back into his flat. The door was finally opened. It was full of rubbish, including a carpet and boxes. They began to remove everything from the cupboard, and when PC Dennison turned back to remove more, he noticed that his colleague was just looking into the cupboard and not moving. As PC Dennison moved to see what his colleague was looking at, he saw a human leg in amongst the rubbish. After four weeks of searching, the hunt for Rachel Moran had ended. Her decomposing remains were found stuffed into the three-foot-by-three-foot cupboard, wrapped in a sheet, and barricaded behind the bags of rubbish. The flat she was found in was just 200 yards from her home. Both men were immediately arrested on suspicion of the murder of Rachel Moran. The owner of the flat was 23-year-old Michael Little. His friend was named Mark Fuller, and Mark immediately jumped up and protested that he had no idea what the officers were talking about. Michael told them that his friend knew nothing about it. Transport arrived to take Mark to the police station, and PC Steve Dennison was left in the flats with Michael Little. Michael Little then began to talk, and PC Dennison wrote down the following words in his notebook. Michael said, I'm so glad you found her. I've wanted to tell someone for ages. It's such a weight off my chest. I saw the police stuff on the news and just hoped they came here. I've not told anybody else. Nobody knows. I can't be a normal person doing this. I must be evil or something. I saw her that night, walking alone. So I went over and spoke to her. She came back here for a drink and we chatted for a while but ended up arguing. I think I walked out of the room or something and when I came back, she'd gone into the kitchen and was stood at the side with her back to me. When I went near her, she turned around and I saw a small knife in her hand. She slashed out and cut me on my arm. He said he had killed her in self-defence. Wanda said she was relieved that her daughter had been found and that they wouldn't be left wondering. Michael Little was taken to Queen's Garden Police Station and booked in. In his interview, PC Steve Dennison showed Michael the transcript he had taken at the flat, Michael's confession that he had killed her in self-defence. Michael said that the transcript was accurate and was what he had said, and he signed it to state as such. The police needed to piece together his movements for New Year's Eve. He had gone out with friends and attempted to talk to a woman that he had a crush on, but when she had rejected him and left with one of his friends, he then ran into someone else he knew and was invited to a party. He agreed to go. He stayed at the party until just after 12 and then decided to go home. When the officers looked at his route they realised something incredibly sinister. And he was wearing a shirt in a similar colour to the blue one you're wearing today. He had been the man who had walked past Rachel and Wanda as she was getting ready to go back. He was the man that Wanda had nearly called out to and asked him to walk with her daughter and keep her safe. It was possible that he had heard Rachel saying she was going to walk home. When looking at the CCTV footage from outside of Jackson's on Hall Road, a male was seen, three minutes before Rachel came into view. It was none other than Michael Little. 
the person who was seen in the footage taken from the school running up to Rachel from behind, was now believed to be Michael as well. As he had previously been ahead of her, this meant he had likely hidden to allow her to walk past and then set off after her. The post-mortem results soon came through and painted a picture of an incredibly violent death. Rachel had been stabbed 27 times in the back, head and neck after being attacked from behind with a 12-inch kitchen knife, which was never found. She had no defensive wounds. Several of the stab wounds were so forceful, they had gone through the back of her body and come out the other side. Rachel's blood was in the flat and suggested that she had been killed in the hallway. There was mud on the back of her legs, which Paul Davison said was evidence that she had been dragged across the grass into his flat. There was no evidence to suggest that she had attacked him. Although we can never be sure about what exactly happened that night, detectives believe he may have tried to talk to her as she walked and that she had made it very clear that she wasn't interested in his advances. This would have been the second time he had been turned down that night and in a fit of rage, he had abducted her and taken her into his flat before killing her. Swabs were taken, which also showed she had been raped. The decision was made not to arrest Michael on suspicion of rape, as they could not be sure if she was alive or deceased when it happened. The block of flats that Rachel had lived in was opposite a children's playground, and on the other side of the playground was Michael's flat. The route she always took to her parents went directly in front of his window, where he would often sit, staring or drawing for hours on end. It is believed he had likely seen her walking past the window before, He had few friends, but officers did speak to the ones he had, and they spoke about his fantasising about women and his claims that he had a girlfriend, something they knew wasn't true. When they described the alleged girlfriend he claimed to have, Michael had said she was a slim woman, standing at six foot, with blonde hair, details that matched Rachel. Despite what he had said in his flat, his story soon changed, He said that Rachel had approached him and asked to walk with him to feel safer. After going to his flat, he claimed that an argument had broken out between the two of them and he had hit her across the face with the back of his hand. He told an officer, I lost it, I picked up a knife and stabbed her. I want some help to speak to a counsellor or something. The amount of evidence they had just didn't fit with his story about this being an argument or that she had attacked him. The police weren't buying it. As for the other person in custody, Mark Fuller, he was released without charge, as it was determined he had absolutely nothing to do with Rachel's death. The question on everyone's minds was who was Michael Little? Michael Little had been born on the 28th of June 1990. He attended Greatfield Comprehensive School in Hull, where he was frequently targeted by bullies because of his weight and was called podgy by his fellow students. He mainly hung around with his sister at school, who was four years younger than him. His father had abandoned the family, and Michael said he was beaten and abused by his stepfather, who would later pass away as a result of kidney disease. Michael adored his mother, and she, along with his sister, were the only women in his life. As he grew into adulthood, he lived in various council flats that he would neglect and never clean. Neighbours often thought of him as strange, and he would use most of his time to stay inside, take drugs and watch pornography. One person who went to school with him said that he would often take drugs, which made him unpredictable, saying, there's always been something wrong with him. 
he has a pretty bad temper. Friday, the 31st of January, 2003. 23-year-old Michael Little was charged with the murder of Rachel Moran. He entered a plea of not guilty, meaning this would go to trial. At Hull Crown Court, Michael Little stood in the box and the trial for Rachel's murder began. The evidence was substantial and people were left wondering what kind of defence he could possibly put up. It was here his story changed again. He said that Rachel had agreed to have sex with him back at his flat and that her murder had actually been committed by his friend, Mark Fuller. He said that in a fit of rage and jealousy after discovering Michael having sex with her, Mark had taken her life. He told the jury that Mark had gone, in his words, absolutely crazy, using a carving knife to kill her. He said that Mark had threatened to kill him and his family if he didn't take responsibility for Rachel's murder. Michael told the court that he regretted not doing more to help her during the attack and claimed that he had been forced to clean up, get rid of the blood and hide her body. I told him I was not going to help him and he said I had no choice. I was extremely traumatised. I just didn't want to know. I just wished everything would go back to the way it was, he told the jury. On the witness stand, Mark was interrogated and quizzed in a brutal series of questioning. He denied playing any part in the murder of Rachel. He told the court he had gone to a party in the city before going to his mother's house in the early hours of the morning, on the day Rachel had been killed. Mark was not charged with any offence by the police, there was no evidence linking him to it, and he had an alibi. This story was nothing more than a desperate attempt by Michael to pin the blame on someone else. Prosecutor Jeffrey Marson QC called Michael's story a pack of lies and said that it did not stack up to the strong evidence presented. When the details of her injuries and what she had suffered were read to the court, members of her family left the public gallery in tears. The prosecution presented all the evidence... Michael making several excuses as to why he didn't have a key to the cupboard, the CCTV, her handbag being disposed of, her blood in his flat, the lack of any injuries on Michael, and the inconsistencies in his stories. It was a very strong case. But was it enough? The jury would deliberate for nine hours following the three-week trial. The longer the jury were out, the more worried the police were looking, said Rachel's father, Ray. Detective Superintendent Paul Davison added that he feared he would be found not guilty the longer the jury were taking. Wanda had attended the entirety of the trial, but could not go into the courtroom for the verdict. As silence fell on the courtroom, the verdict was read. Michael's defence had not swayed the jury. He was convicted of murder. Michael Little showed no emotion. The hard work and dedication of the police had finally brought her killer to justice. Paul Davison said, If we had not found the body, Rachel's grave would have been that three-foot square cupboard. Before the sentencing, a letter written by Wanda was read to the court. She referred to herself as being a physical wreck in the wake of her daughter's murder and said that her husband Ray, Rachel's father, had been left destroyed. For my husband Ray, it has destroyed him, and at times he has felt he has had nothing to live for. The loss of Rachel has severely traumatised my family. Life will never be the same again. We have not just lost Rachel, but lost part of each other. 
When her family came out of court, Rachel's older sister Kerry said, We feel no elation, only emptiness. Her boyfriend Mark said in a statement, My biggest regret is that Rachel was taken from me, and I didn't get the chance to say goodbye. I still can't and don't believe that Rachel has gone. Mr Justice Hooper said that his attempt to blame an innocent man for Rachel's murder showed that Michael Little had a lack of concern for the truth and a total lack of remorse. He added that Rachel's murder had been totally destructive to her family and said that he would write to the Home Secretary and make the recommendation that a minimum tariff be set for his life sentence. In 2007... High Court Judge Mr Justice Beetson set Michael Little's minimum term at 25 years. In 2010, it was reported that Rachel's sister, Vanda, had passed away following complications from chickenpox exposure. Due to complications from diabetes, she had lost both of her legs and was partially blind. Ray and Wanda said she had never, ever recovered from Rachel's death. They believed that she had neglected treatment from the moment it was discovered that Rachel had disappeared until Michael Little was convicted ten months later. Ray said he took away part of Vanda on that New Year's morning. That full year I put down to Michael Little. Vanda was later buried next to her sister. Detective Superintendent Paul Davison, who had led the investigation into Rachel's disappearance, retired from the police force in 2012 after reaching the rank of Chief Superintendent, following 30 years in the job. New Year's Eve is, for many, an evening to look forward to. It's a chance to be with those nearest and dearest, and look forward to whatever awaits in the coming year. This was no different for Rachel. She was someone whose life was just beginning, and it was clearly filled with so much promise. Detective Superintendent Paul Davison later wrote a book about her case, simply titled Rachel. It was published with the blessing of Wanda and Ray. He remained in contact with them and spoke of their strength in dealing with such a loss. They are incredible people. During the investigation, I got a glimpse of the impact losing Rachel had on them, of that gut-wrenching sense of loss. Every second is like a lifetime of pain for them, and it's never going to end. They have shown such incredible fortitude and strength throughout 